Hello and welcome to SimCast, the higher education simulation podcast. My name is Tony Jeremy. I'm the academic lead for simulation-based education at UEA Norwich. Hi everyone, my name is Lawrence Hill and I'm a paramedic by background, but here at UEA Norwich, I'm the chair of the school's simulation committee. Thank you for joining us. So Lawrence, in this episode, we're going to be talking about technique or technology, a technophobe's guide to simulation. Yeah, exactly that. We're going to be exploring what role technology has in simulation, but also if you're a little bit unsure about it, what else you can focus on to try and keep the job simple. So if you like this video, please give a like. And, and if you think this content is useful to you, please hit the subscribe button and, and don't forget to check the notification bell. So I think it'd be good to start with kind of like a, a vignette or a, uh, our own little simulation. About, Give it a little bit of context. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So picture this. We've got a new academic, uh, let's call her Daisy. She's a new academic in a health sciences school. She's keen to deliver a dynamic teaching session and she needs to do it on an A3 assessment of a patient. Mm -hmm. She's got a group of first year nursing students, so pretty inexperienced uh, but needs to cover this important content. Daisy thinks some kind of simulation would be perfect for this. And whilst Daisy hasn't taught simulation before, she has done simulation previously uh, as a learner, which involved some kind of patient mannequin, uh, a simulation room with a two-way glass and a control room. And she really enjoyed it and she, she found that a really engaging way to learn. She knows in the, the, the school that she's working in, in the sim centre, that they've got some fancy kit and equipment. They've got some patient simulators and they've got some controllable monitoring equipment. But she's not 100% sure how to use them or whether they need to be pre-programmed, what technical support she needs. And so she's at this point where she's starting to plan the lesson, but she's currently staring at a blank screen on her computer uh, and not knowing what to do. Yeah. And how many of us as simulation educators have been in that situation? You've got this idea about what you want to deliver, but you don't know where to start. You're not 100% familiar with all of the equipment. How many of us? So if that's if that's relevant to you, if that feels like that's some, a position that you've been in, please just whack us a comment below and, and tell us about how you managed to get over that hump of like that initial moment. How do I get this thing planned and started? Yeah. And I, I've certainly been there myself. And if I think back to when I first kind of did simulation before I really knew the the importance of, of what simulation is as a is a kind of a, a pedagogical background, it's very easy to get whisked away with the technology and, and think that's going to solve all your problems. And, and in many cases, it doesn't, does it? No, it doesn't. And um, yeah, and, and that's and that's hopefully what we're going to be able to get to in this particular episode of the podcast and hopefully what we'll be able to talk about is why technology is useful and is important but why it really ought to be only a part of your thinking because like Daisy you don't want to get lost in the the technology because we need to focus on the technique of simulation. So the title of this podcast comes from a uh, quite a, a famous quote from a seminal piece of text, if you like, in in the world of uh, medical and, and healthcare simulation, from David Gabber, which says that technique is is not a tech uh, simulation is uh, is a technique rather than a technology. 
Um, that's often quoted, but his whole kind of quote in that, and, and something that we perhaps want to dig a little bit deeper, says that simulation is a technique, not a technology, to replace or amplify real experiences with guided experiences that evoke or replicate substantial aspects of the real world in a fully interactive manner. So if we take that quote, where should Daisy start? Well, I mean, my view on this is it should, all good simulations should start with what are the intended learning outcomes for this simulation? So far from Daisy starting with working out what mannequins it is that she needs to use or what specific piece of equipment she thinks that she needs to use, it should be really start with what do I need to plan? And in this case, it's an A to E assessment. And she's with, loads of options and how she does that. So it's an A to E assessment, but it's with first year students as well. Yeah. And that's absolutely, that's so important because you need to really think about the context in terms of the educational background and experience of your learners before you start planning the simulation. What Daisy probably doesn't want to do is throw these first year student nurses who may have limited, maybe have limited experience into some complex, you know, deteriorating patient with multiple non-technical issues to try and resolve as the same at the same time as trying to just plod through A, B, C, D, E. So really focus on the basics first. What can we do to get that A to E assessment so the learners can go through the sort of stepwise approach, the algorithm of hitting that A to E assessment before you even start thinking about making a, a patient simulator do weird and wonderful deteriorations and, and put them into all sorts of different states. Mm. Yeah, because the technology can be kind of appealing and a bit almost a bit seductive, can't it? You're like, oh, yeah, I could use this. I could use this mannequin. I could do that. It'd be really cool. But in truth, we've got probably a group of learners who are feeling a bit vulnerable, um, who are a bit uncertain. They might be the first time they've done this. They've read about an A2E assessment. They understand why it's important to assess deteriorating patients or any patient for that matter, but they might not have put this into practice for if for real, as it were, at all. So thinking about the, the verbs that we use, thinking about Bloom's taxonomy of action verbs in terms of what we are really asking the learner or the student to do in this situation is important, right? Yeah, absolutely. I have a file on my computer. It's, it's a go-to file. It is a list of Bloom's action verbs. Uh, and I, I'm very mindful of what words to choose when I'm setting my learning outcomes. And I often only choose about, you know, two or three kind of key standout learning outcomes that I want to achieve. There's been research by people like uh, Newton et al, which look at creating a master list, list of action verbs. And that also includes, which I, I quite like, things to avoid, um, mm. which are common pitfalls. So words like appreciate, know, aware, explain, understand, we're kind of assuming that by the end of the session that those learners will have achieved that and that's not always the case so you can be a little bit nuanced with your learning outcomes and, and the words that you choose which should mean things are achievable but you're not making assumptions that they're definitely going to achieve that by the by the end of your your simulation session no and that comes back to setting realistic achievable demonstrable outcomes for that simulation um so in terms of what Daisy has to think about, in terms of the learner sort of positionality, she probably needs to think first about what theory have these learners had prior to this simulation taking place? Absolutely. How they familiar are they with what 
constitutes an A2E assessment? Do they understand what needs to happen as part of assessment of airway, as part of an assessment of breathing and circulation and so on? Do they have the necessary theoretical underpinning to make a simulation a useful experience? So Daisy might have to perhaps speak to other members of the team and, and get an understanding of where this fits within the curricula. And, and you're absolutely right. If they've not had any theory on how to assess uh, a patient, um, the use of the ABCD approach, for example, you're kind of almost automatically setting your learners up to fail if you're then inviting them to come into some kind of simulation environment where they have to then use it. And, and that's that's more than likely how the learner will see it, is that, is that students and learners often see the performance in simulation as being an evaluation of their competence as professionals. And um, by by not providing them with the necessary background learning prior to going in to demonstrate these skills, you know, we, you know, we, yeah, you, you could say that we're setting them up to fail, but, but also we're just kind of undermining the value of that learning experience and the time and effort, you know, the resource that's going to go into creating that. Um, so, yeah, so simulation you know, needs to be appropriately situated within the wider curriculum in order for it to be valuable, but also for it to be an appropriate challenge for the learner rather than feeling like an existential threat. Yeah, yeah. So obviously one of the kind of key outcomes is to perform the A2E assessment in, in Daisy's case. I think looking at things like deteriorating patients is perhaps at this stage a step too far. So... Daisy needs to have their, her learners have a, a patient in front of them to perform the assessment. There's no getting around that. Does it have to be a mannequin? Could it be another person or an individual? Could it even be another learner? I mean, what are the options? Well, there's loads, aren't there? So, um, but primarily, yeah, you've got that choice between technology uh, or other humans. And... Um, Particularly if you're, you know, you're suggesting as that rightly that perhaps this first A to E that these students perform ought to be on a relatively stable patient, using other humans instead of, you know, all bells and whistles, you know, super technological uh, simulator. Using other students might be a really good alternative. Yeah, I th and I think in many ways you're going to get a more authentic experience. You could set up a simulator to replicate. And, and the great thing about a simulator, I guess, is that you can set it up and it reliably replicates every single time. But for this initial A to E assessment, finding an, a, a tactile pulse, you, you can't get better than a real human being, surely. No, and that you would can't. add elements of perhaps complexity because people's pulses will be different. But again, that's the real world that these individuals are, are going to be working in. Uh, we don't need to perhaps push those those limits in terms of recognizing uh, deteriorating ranges. Mm. So, and with my experience anyway, I always find that learners have a much more authentic experience when there is a human being in front of them. They find it very, very difficult and challenging to interact with plastic mannequins or or patient simulators mm. and of course what we're trying to do is not just tease out the the clinical component of the a assessment we, we need to address the non-technical skills as well gaining consent communicating effectively with your your patient whether that is a 
patient simulator or another learner on on the program. Yeah, absolutely right. So Daisy's choice here, you know, might be swayed by you know group size as well. Yeah. If if Daisy was thinking, well, I've got fifty, a hundred, a hundred and fifty nursing students that I need to get through this particular simulation because I really want them all to be able to have practiced uh, doing this A to E assessment. You know, using a high fidelity or high technology simulator and having people watch remotely might not really help Daisy to achieve her outcomes in the right way. If, if what Daisy wants is everybody to get hands on, to practice these skills, to communicate with another human, that actually a lower fidelity, lower technology solution, just arranging to have a conversation between these two two students, split them in half and get them all to practice on each other is probably a arguably a more effective way of practicing a procedural task like that. So th- there's an opportunity for a kind of a hybrid approach, if, particularly if we're thinking about larger group numbers. So the, the theory could be delivered with a demonstration of using either a person or a, or a patient simulator at the, at the front of the class, just to give an idea of that perspective of what an A3 assessment, but certainly mm. if we're dealing with larger numbers, perhaps breaking those into smaller groups so that they, we can then concentrate on uh, pairing up people and they can then perform their A3 assessment or even, even just having smaller groups and having some kind of rotation around so that one person plays the role of a patient, another person does an A3, then we have some observers watching, they can then critique and comment back, mm. rotate through so on and so forth. Yeah, and on that topic that you were talking about, having a demonstration, I think that's really important when it comes to acquiring new technical skills, you know, the first time around. Peyton's four-stage approach is extremely powerful tool in enabling learners to acquire new practical psychomotor tasks. And, you know, we've used that to, to good effect with, with learners within the, the School of Health Sciences here at UEA, but it's also used routinely by the Resuscitation Council UK as part of their um, resuscitation training for, um, for people. So how do we address the, the what did Gabba talk about, a fully interactive manner? So for me, that we're looking at immersion in, in simulation here. We're looking at learners and facilitators developing a fiction contract, trying to get that buy-in and believability. What could Daisy do to try and achieve that? Particularly, I think one of the risks of using other people, particularly learners who are perhaps friends uh, with, with other people, is that it can get a little bit stilted. It can be a little bit, this isn't real. Mm. There, there can be giggling that happens, particularly mm. if... So how would how would Daisy try and get around those issues? Well, I think one of the ways is that there there are there does tend to be friendship groups and cliques that develop within you know programs and, and maybe having some system that divides the the learners into groups they're perhaps not so familiar and comfortable working in naturally kind of encourages people to be a little bit more formal and a little bit more focused. Um, so that's one way. Um, but I think. Also, kind of learning should be fun. And, you know, there is a huge amount of, uh, you know, value in a kind of shared experience and people kind of talking about it as mates afterwards. So so perhaps if you if Daisy's intention is to keep the groups together and recognising that, you know, person X is really good friends with person Y and actually they might work quite well together, 
creating a, a believable scenario in which they can couch the assessment that they're going to undertake, this A to E assessment, is a really good way of keeping people focused. Having a really nice clear brief about what the setting is. So for example, in this setting, in, in this particular simulation, you're going to be required to perform an A to E assessment on a student of your university because you're working um, in a in a department where this person has come to be seen because yeah. of a minor complaint. So your 18-year-old isn't playing the role of an 86-year-old. Exactly. Yeah. You've got to use you've got to use as much of reality as you can to 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 make that learner feel comfortable and situated in what they're doing. You know, you're sat in a room that looks like this one. Uh, you are exactly the age that you are and the person that you're assessing is the age that they are. Because to to try and create something more elaborate or more fictitious than that is you're, just that. It's a fiction. Yeah, and you'll get pushback from the learners, won't you? I really like your point about um, making it more fun and engaging. One of the things I have done, because I do find that if you just say split up into pairs, people just split into their groups with their besties and uh, it can you know, conscientious learners can do really well. Other people can kind of take their, their foot off the gas for mm. a little bit. So one thing that we've done on, on the program that I support is we have skills groups that the learners stay in throughout the whole year of their training. Mm. We you call them Alpha Bravo, Charlie Delta. And it's really easy for me as well because I can just go, okay, get into skills group, on Alpha over there, Bravo over there, Charlie. And we, we do the same on the paramedic we, program. We, 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 I initially did it alphabetically through register. So fortunately, people aren't in, in their kind of cliques and their friendship groups. But actually, they develop their own skills group dynamic and, and friendship within there as well. And it's, it's really, really nice to see some of our learners develop their own different friendships, which they wouldn't have done through there. But logistically, it's nice and easy to get, to, to, to get organized. And that's perhaps something that Daisy should be thinking about again. Mm. I fortunately have a smaller group. Uh, a program of study a bit more challenging to do perhaps when you've got 150 200 learners yeah absolutely but making the scenario believable doesn't mean that it can't be have elements of play and elements of creativity because i think these kind of little details add um interest and um help to engage learners because ultimately in a simulation what we're asking them to do is to suspend disbelief they are assuming a role that might be very similar to the one that they have but we are asking them to step into a kind of performative frame of mind so there is opportunities for creativity we're not saying be boring and make it you know absolutely you know sterile as a learning experience you can introduce elements of fun and play but they have to be kind of within the kind of boundaries of what might be reasonably expected if you want to get the best out of a group of learners so we we look like we're in a situation where we're going to be perhaps repeating things several times particularly for working in smaller groups so running an a to e assessment again and again and again could become a little bit tedious so mm. what sort of things could daisy do to to keep things fresh how should how could she perhaps change just slight dynamics in each scenario to keep the learners on their toes mm, interesting um well i think for a start assessing different people within the group is a good start and actually i have a, a, a i call that 
um, phenomenon of repetition dementia. I get that in simulation. If I'm running a simulation multiple times, you get to a stage where you're like, oh, did you did you do that bit or did was that the yeah. group before? Yeah. And you end up in this sort of situation where you're like, I'm really not sure. And it must be the same for the learner as well. You know, if you're going through something that is kind of too stagnant and repeating, you're not going to be, you know, engaging fully with your whole with your whole brain. So um, changing the groups up, changing the changing the scenario a little bit, perhaps starting after the first couple of introducing maybe some some observations that are perhaps like outside Slightly of normal parameters. Yeah. And thinking, oh, how's that gonna maybe. you know, what are you gonna do with that heart rate that's 105? Yeah. Um, what are you going to do with that, you know, glucose monitoring level, which is, you know, less than four, you know, how are you going to, how is this going to, and then, and then we start to go from, you know, a sort of straight skills kind of protocol driven practice more into providing an opportunity for unpacking that experience in debrief. Yeah. Great. Great. I, I like that. And, and perhaps only just doing it like one thing at a time just to keep it still within that the, the, the domain of these learners who are first year students who perhaps know what deranged values are, but you don't really want to put a whole complicated patient onto them. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. Just mixing it up and, and, and changing it up a little bit. Mm. You mentioned debrief. It sounds like what Daisy's trying to do is part task training, if you like, and, and skills in isolation rather than a full simulated patient experience. Does Daisy still need to debrief that? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it, I guess it depends a little bit. I think an element of debrief, an element of recap and a, an element of gauging the learner kind of reactions to what they've learned is probably necessary to an extent, but probably not to the same extent where you're dealing with a complex, involved uh, simulation experience, which is really immersive, which might bring about kind of quite strong feelings or, you know, some existential questions about competence and ability and that kind of stuff. So I think probably for part task training, feedback and coaching is a really appropriate way to think about debrief. Um, and as the complexity of what you're asking learners to do in simulation increases, we're moving much more towards a model of kind of conversational learning rather than something which is a bit more, okay, yeah, you did A and then C. Ideally, you do B before you come to C. Okay. Yeah. That's my but view. What do you think? That, yeah, that sounds sensible. I think there's a, there's a kind of a halfway house, if you like. I think what we're trying to do is encourage that reflective process that reflective thinking which is basically what a debrief conversation is about but you know just looking at it a little bit more simplified because we are looking at kind of part task training here rather than i think when it's more procedural there's probably a little less opportunity for a a kind of a deep debrief because it's you know it's like it's more like mathematical. Like yes. There's, there, there is a right way of doing, whether it's, you know, citing an IV cannula or doing an A2E assessment. You know, there might be slight deviation variation from that, but generally speaking, there's a procedure. There's a standard operating procedure which needs to be followed. And where there's a defined standard, the debrief needs to feel maybe a bit more like audit rather than, you know, research, more, rather than more like a kind of a conversation about what the learner thinks and feels mm-hmm. about it. And actually, do they understand how they deviated from 
what is recognized as being best practice. Okay, great, great. So let's recap what we've talked about. So we've got a scenario where we have a, a new academic trying to plan simulation for the first time. They're kind of almost getting whisked away by the technology, knowing that it's a good experience and they've done it previously. And we've looked at, we should probably start with the learning outcomes first and not get whisked away with the technology. We need to be mindful of what the learning outcomes are and, and ideally use the right terminology so that we're on a, a good starter. And then to think about our learner groups, their level of competency, their exposure and experience to the skills that they're going to be undertaking in the simulation environment. And of course, making sure that they've had the prerequisite theoretical and underpinning knowledge first so that we're not putting them in an environment where it's going to be seen as a a threat rather than the challenge. Yeah, exactly that. So I, I suppose, in a way, what we're saying is that technophobes really need not worry yeah. about simulation because so much of getting simulation right and making it meaningful learning experience for the learner is about curating a learning experience which is relevant and timely and valuable to them. The tools that you use to trigger that sense of immersion or of reality or of that, you know, Gabba's reference to this kind of representation of real life, the tools that you use to get there are just that. They're just tools. And if you're super comfortable with using some high-spec mannequin, great. But if not, that's okay because you can create a really great learning experience just by getting students to talk to each other, especially when you're looking at, you know, relatively basic skills that don't require interventions. Great. Thank you. That's a really nice summary. Cool. Thanks. I think we'll end it there. <laughs> yeah, that feels like a good place to yeah. stop. Well, thank you so much for um, listening again to uh, SimCast. Um, we'll see you on the next one. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye.